Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. In this final month of 2019, we want to bring you Dr. Moore's keynote messages from this fall's ERLC Academy on the Hill. Now, if you've been listening along to our podcast, you'll know that ERLC Academy is an event series that our team began last year here in Washington. And the ERLC, uh, one of our one of our core missions is to equip the church, uh, equip the church with moral and ethical framework from the Bible to apply in the public square. And so we offer the Academy as a time of equipping and connection for Capitol Hill and other U.S. government staffers, as well as our coalition and advocacy group partners uh, and, and local church leaders. Uh, these are nights on Capitol Hill that we that we run out of room, either on the Senate or the House side. We bring in Hill Country Barbecue, which is a delicious Texas barbecue, the only real kind of barbecue. Uh, we bring that here to Capitol Hill. And these nights are really special, and and it's some of my favorite experiences as an ERLC staffer here in Washington, because these nights feel really set apart from the day-to-day grind of what it looks like to live and work on and around Capitol Hill here in D.C. Uh, so it's it's a great time where Dr. Moore is able to come in. Uh, he'll give a, a half-hour to 45-minute uh, keynote message. Uh, it, it's more teaching than sermon, uh, applying the gospel to complex moral and, and ethical issues facing Christians working here in the public square. Last year, he taught an introduction to Christian ethics, which I will link to those uh, those talks here in the show notes. Uh, but this year, uh, we decided to do a series on the kingdom of God. It is so easy for Christians to get caught up in the kingdoms of this world, whether that be your own kind of kingdom that you're trying to build in your career, or or even uh, the story of America and all the partisanship battles that happen, and just this the thought and, and sort of the grandeur before our eyes of, of the story of this country that we are blessed to call home. And yet for the Christian, being an American citizen is, is secondary to being a citizen of the kingdom of God. So that that begs the question what what does that what does that mean what does it mean when jesus commands us to seek first the kingdom and so we sought uh this fall to to ask what does it look like for christians in washington to seek first the kingdom of god so our series considers the the kingdom that is to come the kingdom that has already come in christ and what this means for christians who are engaging in work here in washington DC. So, uh, this this first talk, which we will bring to you now here on this episode, is is titled "Seek First the Kingdom, the Kingdom Future" with Russell Moore. Enjoy. Luke twenty two twenty four through thirty, and the Holy Spirit says through Luke, a dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest, and Jesus said to them. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? 
but I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And God bless his word to us tonight. You know, some of you in the room are kind of analytical uh, sorts of, of minds. You like to look at trends and the way things uh, develop. And it might be interesting to sort of look at trends in church architecture and see what's happening in terms of architecture that would differentiate between those church movements that are growing and those church movements that are stalled or declining. And there'd be all sorts of things that would come out of that. But one of the things I think that you would find is the total absence in all growing church movements of church graveyards. You find a church that has a church graveyard almost always you're going to have a congregation made up mostly of elderly people often that are going to be, it's often going to be a congregation that's dwindling. And the question is, why? Well, a lot of that has to do with the fact that in contemporary American life, no one wants to plant a church or start a church with a graveyard. You want to plant or start a church with the exact opposite coffee, and sort of the fuel of getting <laughs> adrenaline uh, going, because the presence of a graveyard is sort of a, a visual reminder to people in the congregation, there are dead people here, and everybody in this congregation is ultimately one day going to be dead. People think that's kind of a downer if you're trying to attract people into a congregation. Well, it's not that previous generations of churches didn't know that connection. They did, and that was the point. Uh, the, the point in having the church graveyard there on the grounds where the worshiping community was, was to make that point visually. These people were, were here where we are at one point, singing these songs, listening to these sermons, reading these scriptures, praying these prayers, and they belong to us and we belong to them. And one day they are going to be alive. So the church graveyard was a, a sort of ongoing statement of that church's commitment to resurrection from the dead. Now, we live in a time where that sort of statement is itself very uncomfortable because there is a, a, a cultural uh, denial of death, as some uh, philosophers have put it, that's sort of rooted in that natural fear of death that people have, but even more exacerbated by the feeling of a fear of irrelevance. The idea that one day I am going to die is awful, not just because I don't like to think about dying, but also because it challenges that assumption that I have, that all of us kind of naturally on our own have, that all of history has been moving toward me. And I'm the culmination of everything. I don't like to think about that whatever my contributions are and whatever my relationships are, those things are temporary. So if you come to uh, this, this fundamental teaching of the New Testament where Jesus is saying uh, the kingdom of God is in your midst, uh, all of the gospels have Jesus going around and proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God and saying the kingdom of God is at hand. In order to get that, we have to understand what's going on with that impulse 
behind the church graveyard. And we have to understand what's going on around that impulse that doesn't want to think about graveyards at all. So if you think about what's happening with that language of the kingdom of God, it's just like so many other things. Christians historically have tended to, with almost any truth that Jesus reveals about discipleship, about doctrine, about everything else, to sort of emphasize one pole of whatever that teaching is to the expense of the other in ways that can lead to all sorts of bad things. I mean, that, that can happen uh, in, in any of your personal lives. If you focus on who you are in Christ, your, your sanctification in Christ, without also reminding yourself of the fact that you're a sinner, then what are you going to end up with doing? You're going to end up sinning with abandon because you're not going to be guarding yourself against those areas of fallenness and depravity in your life. If you focus only on the fact that you are a sinner and you don't think about that you're made holy and you're sanctified in Christ, then what's ultimately going to happen? You're going to sin with abandon because you're going to give up in despair and say, if no matter what I do, I'm going to be sinning, I'm just going to, you know, go to it and follow whatever that point of vulnerability is. And, and you see this with all sorts of things. So you have uh, churches or Christian movements or even individual Christian lives, sometimes families, that kind of bounce back and forth between legalism and lawlessness, lawlessness and legalism. And the same thing is really true when it comes to the kingdom of God. Uh, when the kingdom of God is outlined in the New Testament, it's outlined as being both already, kingdom of God is here, kingdom of God is present, and the kingdom of God is yet to come. So you think about what Jesus is saying, for instance, in Matthew 24, when he says, if you see wars and rumors of wars, and you see signs in the heavens, you see all of the, the end is not yet. If somebody comes to you and says, I am the coming of Christ. I am the Messiah. Don't believe him unless you see him levitating in the air in the eastern sky. You know, that the end is not here. He's lying to you. So there's an already component and a not yet component. If you emphasize too much of the already, then what you're going to end up with is in a personal life, a kind of perfectionism, uh, which it, in order to do that, what you have to do is to redefine the holiness of God so you can meet it or redefine and deceive yourself about your own sin so that you can meet it. And in terms of our life together, what you end up with whenever the church overemphasizes the already nature of the kingdom, you end up either with a, a super spiritual version of the kingdom of God where all that Jesus means by kingdom of God is forgiveness of sins and right relationship with God, maybe right relationship with one another, which is not the fullness of what Jesus is teaching. Or you end up with some sort of coercion with a coercive state or a coercive church uh, that says, well, what's the end result that we have in the new heavens and the new earth? You don't have people who are in rebellion against Christ. So therefore, we're going to make sure 
there's nobody rebelling against Christ. So you have, you have all of these, these ways that the already, if it's the only focus, can distort the kingdom of God. Same thing happens, though, whenever you have the church that emphasizes what's future about the kingdom of God without emphasizing what's already here. Then you end up with uh, church movements, for instance, that, that have said in the past, you can't pray the Lord's Prayer because that's something that belongs to the future kingdom. Or when Jesus stands up and talks about what life in the kingdom looks like in the Sermon on the Mount, that doesn't apply to you. That applies to people in the future who are in the kingdom. But the New Testament holds these two things together. And just like you've got to be able to distinguish between what's created and what's fallen in in virtually everything in order to adequately uh, understand it, you have to be able to distinguish between what's already and what's not yet in terms of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. So I want us to focus tonight primarily on the future because I think that's where we start. You have to know what the end goal is in order to work backward to what it means to follow Christ right now. And one of the things that I've noticed is whenever I'm in a church setting and I'm, I'm talking about kingdom future and we have a time for questions, I almost always can predict what the first couple of questions are going to be. So there's almost always going to be somebody, usually an older woman, who's going to say, will we know one another in heaven? And I know what's going on in the background. Usually she's a widow or she's, she's lost somebody. Uh, and she's worried about not being able to have a connection with that person. I'm almost always going to have somebody, usually a younger man, who's going to say, is there sex in heaven? And same sort of thing is behind that. You have this understanding of saying, uh, I know that I'm supposed to long for the kingdom of God. I know that I'm supposed to long for heaven, but uh, what am I going to be giving up uh, in, order to, in order to get there? Well, uh, I think that both of those questions are good questions, but both of them sort of are tests of the emergency broadcast system that show us that our teaching of the kingdom really isn't adequate because we have, this, we have this situation where often people within the Christian life, if you put them, uh, if you put them on a drug that made them tell the truth, uh, many of them would actually be dreading the, the life of the resurrection. And part of that has to do even with just how we word it. Uh, we talk about an afterlife as though you have your life and then what is waiting for you in the resurrection from the dead is your afterlife. So think about in a relationship, if you called your marriage your afterlove, uh, that, that would signal something really different about what the relationship is like. And so often when people think about eternity and they think about life in the kingdom of God, without even realizing it, they start to think of it almost like a high school reunion. High school reunion can be great. Go back, see some people maybe you've lost touch with, but what's happening? Most of the time what you're doing is talking about, remember when so-and-so did that, 
remember when so-and-so did this, whatever happened to so-and-so, or so-and-so and so-and-so still together. You're talk, but your focus is on something that happened previously. Now, that's great for an hour, two, three at the most, but an eternity of that is hellish. And most people sort of intuitively know that. And so there's this understanding that I'm living now and my life in the world to come is this sort of ghostly almost existence that is looking backward toward the things that really mattered, which was taking place now in this life. That is not what Jesus is talking about at all when he's teaching the kingdom of God. And if you if you read Jesus's teaching on the kingdom of God through that sort of lens, then you're going to end up uh, with a really bleak view uh, of the gospel that it does not communicate the sort of joy and energy that comes with an understanding of kingdom of God. So let's, let's sort of look at several pieces of this. The first thing is in order to understand the kingdom of God, you have to understand creation. You, you have to understand that what Jesus is talking about is something that's not limited to those opening chapters of Mark or Matthew or Luke, uh, not limited to sections in the book of Revelation or in some of the Pauline epistles. You're talking about something that is a story that's going all the way from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a reason, there's a purpose to the cosmos existing. And as the biblical storyline goes on, it explains to you why. Why is God creating a material universe? Why is God creating humanity in his own image? And the reason is Colossians chapter one. All things are made through him, through Christ, through the the word, everything is created and all things are created for him. So Jesus as human being is the heir of everything that is created. He's the the one that makes sense out of everything. If you don't understand him, then you don't understand the reason behind everything else. So the picture that you have of the kingdom of God is one where ultimately what you have is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus, after all things are put under his feet, he, he hands the kingdom over to God the Father that God may be all in all. So it, it is cosmic in its scope, which is why in Romans chapter 8, uh, for instance, and in Hebrews chapter 2, you have this, uh, you have Paul and the author of Hebrews quoting from passages where it seems that human beings have everything under their feet. So you think of those Genesis passages in which uh, God says, Everything is under your feet. I've created you in my image. You have dominion over everything. David sings about that in Psalm chapter 8. New Testament comes in and says, the problem is everything is not under your feet. Now, you can say that, and uh, sometimes it can feel that way until you have a hurricane headed towards your hometown or until you find out that you have cancer cells uh, growing in your body or until you are uh, camping uh, in a a grizzly-infested area with no weaponry. I mean, you you, you don't have everything under your feet at that moment. Well, why? And the New Testament reveals, Romans chapter 8, that what has happened is that human beings 
who were created to image God and to carry the garden, that that place of harmony between God and the created world, out into the wild. So to domesticate and to cultivate uh, and to create culture uh, throughout the world. That when sin enters the world, you have the created order not recognizing the image of God in humanity. Very different sort of conception of how the world works than the way that we're, we're typically used to thinking about it in, in this sort of uh, modern age, where we, we typically think of uh, the cosmos as a technology, uh, almost. And we, we tend to think of ourselves as a technology. Uh, Wendell Berry's little book, um, Life is a Miracle, talks about even that metaphor of machine. You know, we, we use that, that language all the time. We don't even, I do it all the time. We talk about somebody who's really, really good at something and say, she is a machine when it comes to whatever. Or I want to find out what makes that guy tick. You know, that, that, the sort of language that assumes a technological framework, that's not a biblical conception of the universe, which is relational in ways that sound kind of even weird. So that the creation is in revolt against its human rulers, doesn't recognize them. So if you want to use a, uh, if you want to use a technological term, uh, it's almost like a, a code malfunction between two, uh, two sorts of systems that aren't designed to work together or a tissue rejection uh, that's taking place. There's not a recognition of humanity as being in the image of God, which is why you have Jesus doing all of these really remarkable things that are included in the text of Scripture. So think of uh, the nature miracles, for instance. On the water, you have a storm that comes through on the Lake of Galilee. Jesus says to the water, peace be still. In a, shut up, essentially. And the created order responds to him. Well, why? Uh, because you have somebody who is the legitimate human heir to the kingdom of God. He is not implicated in the satanic fall, and he has the authority. This is especially in Mark, the authority of Jesus dealing with disease and dealing with death and dealing with nature. Even uh, in Mark chapter 1, after Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, the angels are ministering to him, and the wild beasts are with him. Now, why does Mark include both of those details? Because angels, Hebrews chapter 1, those uh, created spiritual beings that we know very, very little about, are created to be servants to humanity as the image of God. Now, the order that we're in right now has been turned upside down so that you have principalities and powers ruling over uh, human beings. And human beings are to have dominion over the beasts. There's to be a recognition of human image bearing that has been disrupted with the fall. So Jesus comes in, speaks to this, and you have this, uh, this cosmic restoration in the person of Jesus Christ. You also have this fulfilling of all of these promises and covenants uh, that are happening throughout the Old Testament. So God is saying, uh, making a covenant with creation in Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9, I will not destroy the, the world through water uh, again. 
you have a, a covenant that is coming to Abraham, I will see to it that your offspring are heirs of the kingdom. Kings will come from you. A promise to David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne and is going to rule forever. Something that does not seem to be very possible when you start reading the rest of the text of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, really bleak uh, group of kings who are consistently uh, falling one after the other. So sometimes people who are working on Capitol Hill, one of the things that I find a lot is that sometimes you will have people who come here really idealistically uh, and maybe think very highly of whoever it is that they're working for. And then they get here and they start to see, ah, the person I'm working for is really kind of a jerk or the person I'm working for is kind of a fraud, uh, is, is a hypocrite. And that can sort of throw you uh, when you start to think, well, if I couldn't even judge this and here I am working, then how do I really know what's going on around me? Well, that's not unusual. You've got that happening throughout all of the lines of the king, uh, kings of Israel, and it seems like the kingdom is completely uh, going away until you have uh, the coming of Jesus. So you have Jesus coming and saying, the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom is in fact here in Jesus Christ. So he's, he's talking about something that is still yet to come, and the New Testament talks about that in various uh, different aspects. So you can end up with some things that sometimes are really, really fascinating to people. They can become really fixated on one aspect or the other uh, of this. And then other people who, because of that, just completely ignore these things. So for instance, uh, Jesus talks about a great tribulation uh, that, that is, is taking place. Well, when Jesus talks about, uh, for instance, those earthquakes, those wars, those rumors of wars. Sometimes what people want to do is to say, well, he's giving you clues and he's giving you signs. So keep a sort of a ledger of how many more earthquakes are happening this year than last year, how many wars or rumors of wars compared to last year, and you can sort of track uh, where you are with the coming of Christ. That's actually the opposite of what Jesus is teaching. What he's teaching is, this stuff is going to happen. And so, and why is he saying this? Because he's saying, I'm telling you all of this stuff ahead of time so that you don't freak out when it happens. When you endure suffering, when you endure persecution, I told you this was going to happen. This is not a surprise to me. So why does he have to do that? Well, for the same reason that somebody's got to tell a kid uh, right before he goes through puberty, hey, this is going to seem like you're going crazy, but it's normal, it's natural, it's going to be okay. Here's why this is happening. Or uh, somebody has to say to somebody, hey, this is what it's like when you have small children in the house. Doesn't mean that you're a bad parent because you're stressed and you're, you're freaking out or whatever the particular life stage is. You're told ahead of time. Jesus says you're going to have tribulation, and you're going to have these birth pangs that are taking place. They start in the first century and they intensify. It seems like there's an intensification at the very end 
but it's not a different sort of thing. It's, it's the same uh, sort of phenomenon, just intensified. Same thing with this um, language of Antichrist. So you think about uh, the 666. Uh, a lot of times, you know, people will change their phone number if they have 666 in it, or uh, there have been people who petitioned the city council. They don't want 666 in their address. I get it. I wouldn't uh, either. Uh, but this can be something that you think, well, what, what does this mean? Well, all sorts of uh, theories about that. But I think what John is talking about in Revelation chapter 13, when he says, I saw a beast that is coming out of the sea, and if you calculate the number, you'll know what I'm talking about, and the number is 666. Is not anything particularly complicated to the people who are, are hearing this. It's not a hidden code where you come in and start counting letters in people's names or translating their names into Hebrew, and it's, it's not what's happening here. Instead, you think about that way of intensifying something into three. God is holy, holy, holy. That number of perfection, seven, seventh day of creation, when God rests in what he has created. Here you have this phenomenon of the sixth day of creation. What, what is the end of the sixth day? It's the human being. So you have human being, human being, human being. You have humanity unleashed from the lordship of God, magnifying itself over uh, God. And then what's the end result of that? The end result of that is you don't end up with people becoming more humane you end up with people becoming more animal-like. So if you overestimate uh, what it means to be human, you end up actually becoming an animal. That's, that's what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. He gets this human power. He assumes that this means that he's a god and that people should, should worship him. And then what's the end result? He becomes like an animal uh, in, in the field. That's the sense of anti-Christ humanity that is uh, in opposition to Christ. And so the New Testament will say, John says, uh, for instance, there is an antichrist that is to come, but there are many antichrists that have come and will come, and there's a spirit of antichrist that is always at work. So the question in any given age is not, let me figure out who baby Damien is, uh, that's the, the coming Antichrist and figure out whether it's ethical to kill him. That, that's not the question. The question is, in every era and actually in every human life, there is a pull toward Antichrist. Uh, when I, and John gives you examples of that. When I uh, say that I have no sin, I deceive myself, I call God a liar, and I, I'm working within this spirit of Antichrist. And this is this is all moving toward that culmination of the kingdom that Jesus uh, talks about, which is the coming of Christ, the judgment, and the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection of both uh, those who are in Christ and those who are not. Now, if you talk about judgment, what you're going to find is people who don't like Christianity, if you ask them, what do you think about Christians, usually judgmentalism will come up, you know, within the first one or two things that they say 
Uh, even sometimes people who don't uh, know any other pastor scripture know, judge not lest you be judged. You can't, you can't judge me uh, is sort of the mentality. Uh, and there's a sense in which that's true. But what they're getting at is true. You do have a lot of harsh, condemnatory, judgmental Christians. But judgment day in the New Testament is not a, uh, a doctrine that is meant to be terrifying to Christians. And, and a lot of times it seems that way. You think, I, mean, I remember being a kid and finding a, uh, a fundamentalist comic book, and there really were those things. There may still be. But uh, this fundamentalist comic book that was at my uncle's house uh, that talked about the day of judgment, and you have this guy standing before God who has no face and just sort of beams shooting out of his face. He looked terrifying. Uh, and you have a movie being shown of everything that has happened in this person's life. And I, as a seven-year-old, am sitting there thinking of all of the things at that time that I certainly would not want my parents to see or my friends to see or my Sunday school teachers to see or whomever. Uh, and it was a sense of terror, like you're being, uh, you're being exposed to the world. That's more the case uh, the more that you go along through life. That's not what Judgment Day is meant to do in the life of the Christian. It is not meant to say, you better watch out because you're being recorded right now. And so you're going to have your uh, life, just like your Google search results, just sort of exposed to uh, the rest of the world. That's true. But the point of Judgment Day is to free people from a sense of meaninglessness, for one thing, because there are all sorts of injustices that people you're going to face in your life. And you can easily keep a record of those things and grow into a kind of bitterness toward those things. Or you can understand there is an accounting for this, ultimately. And you can have the freedom that comes. First Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about this when he's dealing with criticism uh, that's coming from people in the church at Corinth. And he says, I consider it a small thing to be judged by you or by any human court. He says, in fact, I do not judge myself. And why? Because I give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. At the coming of Jesus, you have a judging and you have a resurrecting. You have the reversal of the effects of death uh, that, that takes place. So you have one group of people who become heirs of the kingdom of God, another group of people, those who refuse to embrace the grace of God, who are sentenced then to everlasting condemnation. So you have the, the, this teaching very clearly in Scripture in a way that is intended to cause you to really feel the weight of what's happening in the sorts of decisions that you're making uh, in your life in a way that it's easy to do in some specific ways. So you may have kids in super, super high-achieving sorts of families where everything is on them from, you know, seventh grade onward, if not even earlier, sometimes as early as pre-K. The decisions you're making right now are going to decide whether or not you get into a good college. And whether or not you get into a good college is going to determine whether or not you make it 
in American, uh, in the American economy. And whether you make it in the American economy is going to determine whether or not you're a winner or a loser. You know, that, that sort of mentality is there. We don't tend to see that, though, in terms of all of these little habits, all of these little inclinations that turn us into the people that we are, turn us into the sorts of people who ultimately have to give an account. So for those who are in Christ, what what Jesus is teaching is that his resurrection from the dead is the first stage of what happens to you. So you have a resurrection that does not end up with the sort of uh, view of heaven that we, that we often have, which is basically a kind of choir practice that never ends. And a lot of people will look at that and say, you know, it sounds kind of sacrilegious, but that sounds boring to me. And my response to them is, that's boring. That is boring. That is not what Jesus is promising. Instead, he says, I'm giving to you life and he says, this life is, a, you, you experience a little bit of it. You, you have little signposts of life right now that is then translated into a life that you can't uh, even understand or know or comprehend right now. It's, it's like explaining quantum physics to a two-year-old. You, you can't do it. You can't make that sort of, of connection. So you have to do it with these analogies. And so Jesus says, the rule and the reign that's waiting for you uh, means that faithfulness in small things in the short term ultimately uh, ends up in rewards. The scripture uses that language. Scripture uses the language of crowns. Problem is we don't understand crowns in a world where, you know, there's a tiara for the beauty pageant winner Queen of England has a a crown, but she doesn't do a lot. She does a little bit more these days than she ordinarily does, but she she doesn't have a lot of actual, nobody's really that afraid of Queen Elizabeth uh, II. But a crown signified ruling authority, which is what Jesus is saying to James and John. He says, you serve, and as you serve in these little things, I am putting you over ruling and reigning in the kingdom of God. What does that look like? We don't know. But he says this is an inheritance. There is a life that takes root there. And so what that means is it then recalibrates the way that you see the life right now that the scripture says is a vapor. You you recalibrate the way that you see it because most of your life is not only yet to come, most of your life is incomprehensible to you. So Jesus is saying the problem is all of these sorts of petty disputes, who's greater? Most people don't explicitly have those. James and John tend to say whatever's on their mind uh, in the New Testament. Most people don't do that. We find all sorts of more subtle ways to indicate I'm better than you are. Uh, Jesus says the problem is you're so pitiful because you don't even understand what life actually is. The life that you're experiencing right now is just an internship for the life that actually is waiting for you. And so it's, 
I often tell people uh, the sorts of anxieties that we have and the sorts of uh, disputes that we get into, it's kind of like the kid who's running for class president of his kindergarten. And, you know, if he loses and he's sad and he comes home, it's okay to say, oh, sorry, you lost student president election. But if when he's 27, he's still talking about, I think that student government election at Learn and Play kindergarten was rigged. They really did me wrong. Then he's a loser, you know? That's not a healthy person. And if he wins, give him a cake, do all that. But if when he's 27, he's still introducing himself, I'm Todd Blankenship, President Emeritus of the student government of the Learn and Play Kindergarten, he's a loser. Uh, I mean, uh, th those things are, are nothing compared to your identity. That's what Jesus is teaching in terms of the kingdom of God. So he says, God is restructuring everything in the creation he is ultimately redeeming and reconciling everything in the creation, not every specific thing, but every kind of thing, so that what we end up with is a, a creation, a new creation that includes rocks and waterfalls and animal life and who knows what else, and responsibility, carrying out of responsibility. So if you're, if you're keeping this view of the kingdom future in mind, then what does that do? Well, it's intended to do a number of things. I mean, one of those things is to eliminate fear of death. So there, there's a, a sense of fear of death that it's kind of like, for most people, it's kind of like a low-grade fever, that they, they don't really know what's going on in their life because they suppress it and they find all sorts of ways to distract themselves from the fact that they are going to die. Pornography addictions are usually not about sex. They're usually about fear of death and distraction from fear of death. Uh, a lot of times, uh, that, that sort of workaholic sort of ambition is not really about the ambition. It's about distracting myself from the fact that I know that I'm going to die. So that there's an elimination of a fear of death here, and then there's a restructuring of priorities. So you're, you're waiting for glory. And if you think about, I mean, that word doesn't mean a lot to us, but I really commend to you C.S. Lewis's little essay, The Weight of Glory, where he talks about, if you want to understand what glory means in the Bible, there are really two things that it's kind of like. One of those things is illumination. Sort of, uh, there's the image of light is taking place. And the other is fame or applause. So if you think about uh, the sort of hunger that people have for fame, and there's, there was a, an article not long ago about how, if you notice how famous people rarely tend to handle fame well, ultimately. You have a lot of exceptions, but a, a lot of times that's not the case, which is why, you know, there aren't a lot of child actors that really made it big who end up being really well-adjusted grandparents. You know, it just doesn't usually happen. And why? Because usually people who hunger for the approval of strangers are the least equipped 
to be able to actually deal with what comes with that, which is the, the constant seeking of approval from strangers. So you, you can find a lot of, you, you can go to a, I, I was talking uh, not very uh, long ago with a seventh grader and said, uh, what do you want to do? And the answer was to be a YouTube star. And you realize, okay, well, there's this, what's really going on there? You talk to this kid uh, long enough, you realize it's not that this kid has a driving passion for a specific set of content uh, that he wants to post on YouTube. It's that he wants to be seen, he wants to be recognized, he wants to be famous. Well, just like everything else, that is not, uh, th that is rooted in something that is actually good. The, the longing for glory is good. It's just that all of these places of finding glory don't actually uh, bring it about. So a, a view of the kingdom in, in the future changes that, changes uh, the way that you see what really matters, what, what's really wasting your time or not. So uh, the Bible can talk about, for instance, Caring for the poor, there's a calculation that people tend to make, especially here, especially here, the temptation can be. Let me figure out who this is that I'm talking to. You know, who do you work for? What do you do? Uh, and that's going to gauge how much attention I'm going to give to this person because it makes sense. That can help me to... Uh, help me to continue with my career and I can be more effective. The uh, Bible is saying care for and attention to the poor is an investment that is recognized by God. So that you, you, your problem in that sort of calculation is that you don't really see uh, what God is doing with this faithfulness in small things that then has permanent uh, sort of uh, reality. And so that changes those sense of uh, priorities but it also changes the way that we uh, forgive. So if you think of when Jesus is being arrested, Simon Peter's reaction is one that I would consider to be commendable. If somebody's trying to kill me, I would kind of hope that my friends would fight for me. Simon Peter does, takes his sword, cuts off the ear of the arresting soldier. Jesus rebukes him. And why? Because Jesus is saying this is for the Father to judge. So Paul is able to say in Romans chapter 12, forgive, and why? It is not because you are saying this is okay. If what's happening in forgiveness is you're saying, okay, now I understand you and what you did to me is okay, that's actually not forgiveness. You're just working out a misunderstanding there. Instead, what's happening in forgiveness is I am saying God is the one who will exercise vengeance. God is the one who will call every secret thing to account. Therefore, I don't have to. That's what's usually in my mind when I'm having trouble with forgiving is to say, if I don't keep a record of this wrong being done, then nobody's going to know about it. And this, this person is going to get away with it. I mean, that's sort of a natural human clamoring for justice. A sense of an understanding of the kingdom of God changes that. And mostly changes then the way that you see what matters in terms of life. 
So faithfulness to Christ, endurance under suffering, building of character, relationships with other people. Jesus says when he breaks bread with his disciples, I will not eat this with you until I eat it with you in the kingdom of my father. Will not drink this wine with you until I drink it uh, with you in the kingdom of my father. So that little old lady's question to me, what she's really asking is, I've had these relationships in my life that are a blessing to me, and I'm afraid that what's waiting for me is a lonely kind of existence with I'm singing before the throne of Christ, but I don't have this relationship with my husband. When reality, what the kingdom of God is saying is, whatever is good in what you're experiencing there is a signpost that is magnified before, to what you can't even see or understand. The guy who is saying, uh, am I going to have sex in heaven? What he's saying is, this sort of transcendent experience, do I need to just sort of make a bucket list here because ultimately I'm going to be a ghost? Uh, no. The, 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 everything that that is pointing you toward is fulfilled beyond what can be explained to you in the kingdom of God. And that's why church graveyards, though they're not going to come back, largely due to zoning laws, actually were a good idea in reminding you of the shortness of life, like a vapor, and in reminding you that if Jesus is right in his resurrection appearances, and his disciples were willing to be tortured to death to say he was. If he was right, then that means that those people in that graveyard join the life that he is already living. And that's when life really begins and gets interesting. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, Gary Lancaster, Marie Delph, and Conrad Close for getting this episode published online. Resources from this conversation are available at ERLC.com, along with additional podcasts, videos, and articles to equip you and your church. 